0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. also want to invite you to access our sermon notes through our Google Drive folder that you can um, access through our bulletin if you'd like um, to follow along with our notes this morning. Those are always accessible outside of... Our Sunday gatherings as well if you want to refer back to those, especially if listening to a podcast because you weren't here on a Sunday. We've wrapped up our um, study of the letters to the seven churches. We've seen some of the uh, commands and uh, some of the rebuke and some of the commendation uh, given to uh, those churches, and we've examined in light of um, what Jesus says to them, what it means to us as a church today. Um, and we continue to to work through that through our survey that we've made accessible to our church family. We would encourage you to fill that out and give feedback to our leadership as we continue to strive to lead in the, the best way possible. Um, and so we certainly welcome your feedback and being able to do that as we think through implications and applications for us as a church I want to direct our attention now to Revelation chapter 4 today, and we'll start reading um, there in verse 1, and we're going to cover the entire chapter today. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing up open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, at, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Again, as we said earlier today, it's a, it's a kaleidoscope, a theological kaleidoscope of pictures and images and metaphors of what the throne room is like. As John gets to glimpse in and see uh, the inner workings of heaven and uh, the creatures that have been created uh, not uniquely as man in the image of God, but certainly with their own unique purposes um, surrounding the throne and giving um, ongoing and continuous praise and glory to our Heavenly Father uh, we, we approach this, and, and I hope we can approach it in such a way where we can, as best we can, draw out the things that can be known from this chapter, and certainly the things that need to be examined and applied to our life as believers in light of what we see taking place here. Um, and I say that because there's a lot of things that we're just simply not going to know in trying to study this chapter, right? Like, like we're not going to know who these 24 elders are. We just don't know who they are. We don't know who these living creatures are, if they're anything beyond simply what is stated about them. Uh, we don't know if they represent something bigger and greater that, that isn't revealed to us here. We can try to look at other passages of Scripture, but honestly, um, there's just not a lot of information contained in other portions of Scripture to give us definitive answers about maybe some of the questions that we'd ask here. Which is okay because I don't think the purpose of this chapter and what John writes is for us to know these things. Otherwise, he would have stated and told us who these people are, who these creatures are, who these beings are. Um, Instead, I think what we're going to see is that the function of these beings is far more important than their identity. What is taking place in this setting is far more important than understanding some of the details that maybe we would be led to ask in simply reading through this. And so we're going to try to step into this and take away things that are um, clear and evident. um, And I think we'll see a lot of application to our own personal life uh, today. So our sermon title today, The Creator is Worthy of Our Worship. The Creator is Worthy of Our Worship. Chapter four is all about um, God as our creator. We're going to see a shift in chapter five where the focus moves from God as creator to God as redeemer. And both of those Both of those functions demand our worship. And so we'll see first of all today that God is our creator and that certainly makes him worthy of our worship. Our summary sentence for today, God deserves and demands our worship based on who he is and what he has done as our holy sustaining creator. God deserves and demands our worship based on who he is and what he has done as our holy, sustaining creator. So we're gonna see some aspects today of God demanding and deserving our worship because of who he is intrinsically. His character demands that he is worth our attention, that he is worth our worship, all right? But we're also gonna see that God as, uh, as our creator, his functioning capacity, what he has accomplished as our God also necessitates our worship to him. For our kids, because God is our creator, he deserves our worship. God deserves and demands our worship based on who he is and what he has done as our holy, sustaining creator. As one who has to look at resumes constantly, especially this time of year, as we look to hire uh, different individuals to to teach and fill slots at Trinity, um, I'm often... uh, I often find in looking at resumes that you find incomplete resumes. You find individuals who possess great character, uh, they possess great qualifications, they've gone to school, they've, they've demonstrated that they have put forth the effort to learn and to know, but they lack the experience that maybe you desire, that, that proof that they are able to do what you need to hire them to do. So character-wise, they may be solid, and a lot of times I find people who they are character-wise exactly what I want, but they don't even have the education that I need for them to fill a spot that I need them to fill. And so there's an incompleteness to that resume, right? They've got the character part, but they don't have the evidence of being able to accomplish what I need them to accomplish. On the flip side, I, I encounter a lot of times resumes of people who have accomplished great things. They've gone to school. They've got a great degree from a great university. They've been teaching for a while. They have demonstrated the capacity to teach, um, and then if if they're able to coach as well, that's just that's just icing on the cake. And so maybe they've they've got a resume that not only shows they can teach, but that they can coach, and they've been successful at both. But the character's severely lacking, right? Like there was a recently, we brought in a teacher to to interview for our English position, and just blew me away. I mean, I loved her resume. I loved things about her. I loved everything that she said in the interview, except for the fact that there was zero spirituality to what she had to say. And when we questioned her and asked her, she presented herself more as a seeker, one who is still trying to figure out Christianity and figure out where she stands with religion. And, and so she, as she exited the room, the, the group that interviews uh, teachers with me, we just we were so disappointed. Because here, here's one that we knew could fill the position and fill it well from the, the teaching part of things, but the character was severely lacking. What we find when we, when we see God in this throne room is that he isn't a great being who lacks evidence of great work, right? He's not a, a God who has this great character but hasn't demonstrated his ability to do something. He has great character and he has the resume to show that he has accomplished great things, right? And, and, and on top of that, he isn't a great being who does great things that goes unnoticed, Right? He's, not, he's not, from a, to borrow a sports analogy, he's not a team who has the best record and the best players but fails to win the championship. Right? Uh, a few years ago, the New England Patriots were a team who had gone undefeated, who had scored unbelievable points in the, in the season, and they are kind of known as the greatest team to not win a championship. They, they don't get the accolades and the recognition that they deserve, and I work with a guy who was on that team. Um, And so he saw everything kind of crumble in that last game. They've gone undefeated for the whole year and nobody really remembers that team. They don't talk about that team, right? Because they failed on that last day of the season to get that final victory. They're the greatest team to not win a championship. God's not like that either. He's not overlooked in the sense that he doesn't have great character and a great resume but goes unnoticed, right? We see in heaven that not only does he have great character, not only does he have this great resume of accomplishing great things, that it gets all the attention and recognition that he deserves for all time, right? We don't know exactly when this scene is taking place in heaven because John is caught up in this vision. We don't know if it's what was happening that day in heaven or if it's something that takes place in the future. We're not exactly sure the chronological... I'm not going to even try to say that word. We're not sure of the timing of when this happens, right? We, We don't know for sure. But what we do know as we continue to go through Revelation and we see pictures of the future, of of every tribe, nation, and tongue coming together to worship Jesus, that he gets all of the attention for all of the character and all of the accomplishments, right? Nothing gets missed. And so the good news is that God is a great being who does great things and receives the recognition that he deserves. We see it in chapter 4 as God being our creator, and in chapter 5 we will see it as God being our redeemer. A couple things that I want us to note here as we talk about God being our creator today, and this is why it's so important. Because first of all, the essence of sin is the abandonment of submitting to God as our creator. We talk about God being creator and him being worthy of our worship, and that's so significant. And part of the reason we're doing Revelation coming out of Genesis is because these two books connect together so well. And right off the bat, we can see God is being acknowledged as creator in this chapter 4. A a, a creation, a creator who we learned about extensively in Genesis. And we know, thinking back to Genesis chapter 3, that the essence of sin for Adam and Eve was the day that they began to doubt the authority of God in their life, right? They began to doubt his goodness. They began to doubt whether or not he could do the things that he said he would do, right? Satan's Satan's big, big hook for them was God wants to hold you back. God doesn't have good intent for you. He's, he's created this law, this law for you that, that wants to rob you of joy. And on top of that, you think God's going to kill you, and that's not the case. God knows that if you'll do this, you'll be just like him, and you'll have the same power that he has, right? And so they abandoned the idea of submitting to God as their creator, which means the essence of salvation is God returning us to a state of properly acknowledging him for who he is. We can see this in uh, the teachings in the New Testament, both these ideas here. First of all, in Romans chapter one, in verse 25, certain verse 24, it says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, why Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Right? Sin begins when we deviate from submitting ourselves to God as our creator. That's what happens in Romans chapter one. Paul details for us the condition of man, because man has, has vacated his role as worshiper of the Creator and has instead elevated creation above the Creator, as his source of joy and his source of fulfillment. And so salvation is all about us bringing, is all about bringing us back to that conscious knowledge, that conscious awareness, that we submit to God as our Creator. Acts chapter 14 and verse eight. Paul, once again arguing for an understanding of God as creator. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. And what was the essence of that good news? That you should turn from these vain things. These, these created gods to a living God, Paul says, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and food and gladness. Paul says, you need to turn your attention, your heart's attention, your mind and your worship back to the one true God who is your creator. Right? Acts chapter 17 is a similar passage where uh, Paul is, is arguing to those individuals to come back to an understanding of God as creator. Why is that important? Because in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, we find out the purpose of our creation. Right? It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We were created for God, right? And so for us to deviate from that relationship is to deviate from our purpose. Some introduction as we look at this chapter. And again, we're seeing God as creator and why that's so important and why that's worthy of our worship, we see, uh, first of all, that there's a door that's standing open to heaven. John is invited to see things from a heavenly perspective by Jesus. He identifies the, the one who calls him to heaven as the one who speaks like a trumpet who has already spoken to him. So referencing back to Revelation 1, we know that to be Jesus, and Jesus calls John up to this heavenly setting to see a heavenly perspective. So we, we read through the letters to the churches, and, and John knows that there's things that the churches need to do and he also knows there's things that are coming the church's way and he's seen that from an earthly perspective right he saw Jesus walking amongst the churches and the letters going forth and now he gets a heavenly perspective to see how these events play out we're told that these things that John will see takes place after these things have already happened it says come up here and I will show you what must take place after this Again, this is the unfolding of the letters to the churches. It's a reference to the future. doesn't necessarily have to be the end time when Jesus comes back once and for all, but it's simply the future. It's the coming of historical events that John has already to described to these churches. The communication takes place in the Spirit, and that, that ought to alert us that there's a uniqueness to what we're going to be reading about. This is a special revelatory state a vision type of situation that that may not always fully picture reality right like john's in this this weird spiritual state that that we probably can't fully understand and and god is communicating to him in that state and so he's going to see a lot of things that may be representative of other things we don't we don't know for sure how much to take as reality and how much to take as um simply symbolic of other things and so we have to keep that in mind and Proceed with caution as we look at some of these things. We've already said there's lots of metaphors used in these two chapters, chapter four and five. Metaphors are needed because the heavenly realities simply cannot be described in human language. It's just inadequate, right? And so God gives us created things to help us better understand some of these spiritual realities, but because we're finite, because we're the creature rather than the creator, we're going to have a hard time wrapping our minds sometimes around who God is and, and what he is like. And so as best we can, we're going to seek to understand some of those things as John tries to use language that gives us, as best he can, a picture of what he saw. I shared with you there's some similar visions in other areas of Scripture. Hopefully your group got to look at them briefly this morning. If not, I'm going to share the references with you if you want to jot these down. We're not going to take time to look at them today for time's sake, but uh, these other chapters are very similar for those that had a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, and Isaiah chapter 6, all three of those chapters, um, John borrows some similar language in how he describes his experience. Um, and it's probably more so that it's a culmination of all those experiences that John gets the the, the best or the, the most lengthy um, perspective on what those others had seen as well. There's a lot of cherubim and seraphim that take place in these visions. Um, Those terms aren't specifically used necessarily in chapter 4 here, but the images that are very similar, those beings are labeled with those terms um, in some of those other passages. Cherubim and seraphim are angelic-type beings. Um, Seraphim are only discussed in the Isaiah 6 passage. Isaiah 6 is probably the familiar passage of um, Isaiah being brought before the presence of the Lord, the coal being used to to, uh, to burn the uncleanness of his mouth, and uh, you got these, these um, seraphim with the six wings, and they're flying around, and that's the only time we have them mentioned. Um, we have cherubim mentioned a couple other times. We have cherubim who guard the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are exited from it, we have the cherubim that are pictured on the Ark of the Covenant, these angelic beings that kind of hover over the presence of God on the Ark of the Covenant. Um, we don't get a lot of detail about what these, what these things are. Are they the angels that we see in other portions of Scripture? Are they their own unique uh, creature uh, category? We're not exactly sure, but you'll see and learn a little bit more about them if you reference those chapters that I gave you. I think for this chapter, what we see is that the throne and the one seated on the throne are the focal points of the chapter. And throne indicates rule. And we see that God's rule is tied to his creation and to the fact that he controls history. Um, John's very clear in reminding us that uh, God is over the events that are going to take place. In fact, he highlights the fact that these are events that must take place, uh, tying it to God's control over history. And so the throne and the one seated on the throne are certainly the focus of this chapter. Um, I think John writes in such a way that he wants to ground our worship in the heavenly worship of the celestial beings. I think he gives us some things that we can model in our own worship here on this earth. Um, And certainly we are called to celebrate his control over history and its outcome. That seems to be the message of what they're worshiping about, that God is in control, he's the creator, he's the sustainer of all things, he is the one that brings to fruition all of the plans that he desires. Um, And that's kind of the motivation for their worship in this chapter. And I think we as Christians can celebrate that. Um, I think coming to a Sunday gathering, keeping in mind the fact that all of history is in control of God, and he brings his plans to, to fruition the way that he wants to, that certainly gives us cause to worship and to celebrate him um, as our God. I think it also reminds us that the onslaught of evil coming in the remaining chapters falls under the supreme authority of this throne room. The picture that we get here is this, this awesome control, this awesome authority that God possesses, and so the evil that comes in the rest of this book, we have to filter that through the greatest throne, with the greatest being ever controlling all of it. And that should give hope and security, again, to the churches that have just read these letters, especially to those churches that know bad times are coming, that all of it is submitted to this throne room. And that gives great hope and encouragement. From a theological perspective, we see in this chapter that God is spirit. He is eternal. He's sovereign. He's powerful, holy. Um, he's the source of life. Um, what, what I think is so great about uh, what we see, even in chapter four, here is that we aren't left to answer some of the greatest questions of life. I, I sat down, I was watching um, a portion of a movie last night, and um, it, it was a space movie where people were trying to figure out some of the, the, the questions of life. And their, their expedition was motivated in trying to answer the question where do we come from? What is our purpose? What happens when we die? Right? And these are questions that have been answered thoroughly for us by our Creator. Right, We find our purpose in our creation, that we were created for Him, we were created to worship Him, that we deviate from that, and so He saves us and redeems us back to that purpose, Right, but that our purpose is found in our creation. Right? He has created us for that purpose. Um, and then certainly within this, we see the, uh, the redeeming aspects of what can happen to us when we die that we can be clothed in white garments, we can, be, uh, we can be equipped with a golden crown that become tools for us to then worship him for all eternity. And so certainly a glorious picture that we see, the throne room here in Revelation chapter four, we'll try to unpack this with the time that we have remaining. Our first point for this morning, our motivation to worship and to praise God. First of all, we praise God for he is king over everything. We praise God for he is king over everything. It says, After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. For our kids, God is in charge of everything. First of all, we see all history is submitted to God. All history is submitted to God. He says, let me show you the things that must take place after this—not what will take place, but what must take place. Jesus is communicating to John the things that you are about to witness, the things that you are about to get a glimpse of. They are the designed outworking of God's will. This isn't what is going to take place, right? Like we're not getting a a picture where God looks into the future and says, "Okay." Here's what happens if man is just kind of left to himself, and this is how history would play out. No, this is Jesus telling John, let me show you what has to happen. This is what must happen. And so we can praise God specifically for his plans that are perfect. His plans that are perfect. Right? We're going we're to see a lot of uh, onslaught against the church. As we continue to move through Revelation, we're going to see different powers and different authorities that come to, uh, come to rise and, and to have influence over this world. We're going to see Christians killed for their faith. It's things that must take place, not things that will take place, things that must take place. In fact, as the martyrs begin to cry out to God later in the book of Revelation, he tells them to, 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 to relax, to, to, to rest, to take comfort in the fact that the number isn't full yet. Those that would be martyred for their faith, that number hasn't been reached yet, that God is completely overseeing the process of evil even playing itself out. We praise God for His plans that are perfect. I love this quote uh, by Corey Tinboom. "There is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. God has no problems, only plans. There's no panic in heaven. And Jesus certainly communicates that up front to John. Let me show you the things that must. Take place. There's almost an anticipation uh, for John that as he comes and begins to witness the things that he's about to see, that these are things that are designed by God. All history is submitted to God. Number two, all reward is gifted by God. All award or reward is gifted by God. It says around the throne. Were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. We've seen these two elements already, right? We've seen these two elements kind of held out as incentives, as promises to these seven churches. And what we're seeing here is that God promises things that he keeps, right? God tells the churches, remain pure, uh, persevere, obtain victory, and you will receive white garments that have been washed and dipped in the blood of the lamb. You will receive the golden crown, that victory token for remaining faithful unto death. And we see here in Revelation those rewards being given out by God, that he says he would do it, and we see him fulfilling those promises. So we can praise God For fulfilling promises. He keeps the promises that were extended to those seven churches. We praise God. He's king over everything. He's king over history. He's king over the rewards that we get in the afterlife. But number three. He is also um, king over all authority. All authority is submitted to God. All authority is submitted to God. Look at these images and pictures that we get in the throne room. It says that once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. We get very little description about the one who was on the throne. We'll talk about that in a minute. But around the throne, there's twenty four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty four elders. And then you go to verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, we're burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Then there's this great sea that's before the throne as well. And then not only that, you've got four living creatures with, with eyes that are basically everywhere. <coughs> and you got one that looks like a lion, an ox, um, one that looks like the face of a man, and one that looks like an eagle. And they're flying around as well, and they've got eyes everywhere. And all of, these, all of these images, all of these pictures, they're praising God, right? They're praising God, and they're worshiping God, and they're giving credit and honor and due to God. For us, we praise God for being greater than all other beings. These elders and these living creatures, as great as they are, Right? And if we're not careful, we could give too much attention to them and, and really try to dissect who they are and why they look the way that they look and, and give far more attention to them than they deserve because they're certainly not looking for attention in this chapter, right? They're giving all attention and all glory and all focus to the one who has created them, right? And so, as great as they are, they are submitted to the one who is greater. Right? And so we can praise God for being greater than all these other beings. And if you think about it, some of the descriptions and some of the pictures of these individuals probably would have felt very similar to some of the gods that some of these people were being tempted to worship, right? The emperor worship and the gods and the temples that we talked about being set up as man tries to to take creature and elevate it to a status of worship. Some of these pictures maybe would have even conjured up images of, of false gods that could have been worshipped. And what's the picture here? Instead, these beings, these creatures are creatures, right? They don't deserve our worship. They don't deserve our attention. They don't deserve our focus. Instead, they are directing all of their worship to the one that created them, right? It kind of goes back to that Romans 1 mentality. Man had elevated created things above the Creator, and instead, we get this picture in Revelation that coming back to a correct understanding that all of creation worships the creator. Let's talk briefly about who the elders and the living creatures may be just so that we have a working understanding because they will pop up again. Um, and I'm not gonna give you all the alternatives because really there's not a, a ton of biblical support for any of the views that are out there. The one that kind of makes the most sense to me um, the elders, the number 24, um, it being a heavenly representation of the complete church body. I think the elders are a heavenly representation of the complete church body. Now, I don't know if they're human or angelic, but I do think that it makes sense to see them as a, a heavenly representation of the complete church body, the, the church body being made up of both Israel and the Gentiles in the New Testament. All right, the reason that I lend support for that is because in Revelation chapter 21, these numbers pop up again when God is talking about the new city that's coming down for his people. Revelation 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. You can already start to pick up on some of the same imagery that we've already read about. Fast forwarding to chapter 21. It had a great wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's really one of the few times that the number 24 pops up in Scripture at all. And so if you fast forward ahead, you see the 12 tribes of Israel representing that Old Testament, that Old Covenant people that we then better understand in the New Testament through the 12 apostles as God begins to form what we know to be the church. And so to me, it makes sense to kind of see these 24 elders as a heavenly representation of those two peoples coming together as one, okay? Again, that's about all the biblical support I have for that, um, and there's even less biblical support for some of the other theories out there. And so we'll just kind of let it lay rest there that um, that the 24 elders may represent that. Is it true that God has taken Israel and the, and the Gentiles and merged them into one people? Yes. So even if I'm wrong about it representing that, what I'm saying is still true, right, that That God has brought together Israel and the Gentiles to be one people of God, and that's certainly pictured in the new city. So again, I'm okay with saying that that's all I have for that, and if we're wrong, that's okay. Living creatures. Um, I see them as celestial beings who engage in ongoing acts of worship and praise. I'm not going to try to make them to be something that we're not told that they are. Um, They're just some unique beings that are in heaven. Right, The cherubim and the seraphim are described in similar ways. And so um, for whatever reasons, for whatever purposes that we may learn down the line, God has created these unique beings and their sole purpose seems to be to give him worship and praise ongoingly in heaven. I think, again, the main point, like I said earlier, is to focus on the function of these beings rather than their identity. Focus on what is most clear. And what is most clear is they aren't concerned about their identity. They're not concerned about getting any attention, right? They live to draw attention to our heavenly father. All right, so we praise God for he is king over everything. Number two, praise God for he is... Uh, oh, number four, all power flows from God. That's also a great point too. Um, we praise God for harnessing the greatest creative powers. Uh, going back to that throne room scene, you've got, you've got thunder and lightning and rumblings um, you've got this great sea that's before the throne, but it's a sea that's been calmed, right to the point that it's like glass and it's clear. For those of us that like to fish, this is the ideal environment for catching fish. When the when the water is is still to where it looks like glass and it's clear to where you can see through it, right? It's a, it's a beautiful day to be on the on the water. Um, And and it pictures God calming what oftentimes is very raging, right? The sea is pictured in Scripture as this unknown, mysterious, raging force that has creatures in its depths that could bring about fear. And before the throne of God, it's like glass, right? It's like a sea of glass. It's, It's calm. It's clear. There's no surprises with it. We see God harnessing all the creative powers that oftentimes bring fear to us as humans, right? Right, We've all grown up and, and, and had those days when we were younger where we were fearful of thunderstorms that rolled in, the unknown, the noises, uh, the thunderings, and the flashings of lightning. Some of us have had to lay with our kids and try to bring comfort to them because of the, the fear that, that, co- that comes with that. That, that. that is pictured for us um, all the way back in Exodus nineteen sixteen, when God's on Mount Sinai and his presence has ascended bel- uh, upon that mountain. Children of Israel are at the base about to receive the, the commands and the laws of God. And it's described as an environment of lightning and thunder and rumblings. And God harnesses those things, right? God controls those things. All of those things are created by Him. All of those things are controlled by Him. We praise God that all power flows from Him. Number two, we praise God for He is holy in everything. We praise God for He is holy in everything. For kids, God is greater than all of creation we praise god for he is holy in everything i told you that the description of god is far less clear in revelation 4 than it is in revelation chapter 1 Um, and i think that's intentional because i think the, the 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 persons of god that are being described are different in Revelation 1 and in Revelation 4. In Revelation 1, we're getting a glimpse and a picture of God in flesh. God takes on human form, and so John can describe Jesus with human attributes, right? So he talks about his physical appearance, and we can resonate and connect, and, and we could probably have our kids draw a picture of Jesus as he's described in Revelation 1. Now, I told you as we worked through that, I don't think that's what Jesus looks like right now, right? Like, I think that how he's pictured there is meant to draw um, understanding to some of the spiritual realities about Jesus. And so he's pictured in a certain way there in that vision that may not be reality. We'd have a hard time having our kids draw a picture of God described here in Revelation chapter 4, right? Um, he's not really given any human characteristics. It says, He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper and carnelian, precious stones, jewels of that time. There's debate on exactly what color they were, um, when these terms are applied to them. May have been green, may have been red, may have been blue. Um, Again, not really important. The idea here is that light is being used, uh, color is being used to describe God upon his throne. Um, I certainly believe that it's, that it's our Heavenly Father, God the Father, that's being described and, and being uh, worshiped here upon this throne. Because we're going to see Jesus show up in a different capacity in chapter 5, right? Jesus is the one who shows up, who is worthy to unleash the scroll that no one else can unleash, right? And so Jesus shows up in a different capacity in the scene in Revelation chapter 5. So Revelation chapter 4, I think, is devoted to God the Father upon the throne. And you could say, well, why, why is he described this way then? Well, first of all, in First Timothy uh, chapter six, verse sixteen, verse fifteen, it says, uh, "Paul says, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see." To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This idea of unapproachable light. But I think God in his goodness and in his own desires to protect us keeps himself from being describable. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the people's, Under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. God says, The reason I haven't given you a clear picture of who I am is because I don't want you to try to create a false image of me. I don't want you to try to set up an image to then turn and worship. Right? And so, God keeps himself veiled. He keeps an understanding of what we, what we are to think of physically when we think about our Heavenly Father. He keeps that veiled from us so that we can't worship a graven image, right? God in his goodness and his protection keeps himself separated in appearance. He is set apart in appearance, right? He takes on human form through his Son, Jesus Christ, but in his essence, he remains spirit and set apart. We praise God for that. We praise God for being indescribable in appearance. We cannot image him, but we see glimpses of him in creation. Light is used here. Symbols are used, right? This picture of the rainbow surrounding the throne is certainly something that should remind us of our studies in Genesis, that as this throne issues judgment upon the earth, and that's coming in the next few chapters, don't lose sight of the fact that there is a rainbow around this throne, right? What does that remind us? That God's judgment is very merciful, it's very gracious, that it's well thought out, that there's long suffering before that judgment. That's what the, re- the rainbow should remind us of, of as we see it encompassing this throne. Think back to what we studied in Genesis, right? The rainbow comes at a time when God had allowed years to pass opportunities for man to repent. And in fact, God steps in and says, to prevent this from getting any worse, I'm gonna bring judgment, right? And then after the judgment, lest Noah and his family continue to fear possible future judgment, God reassures them of his grace and his mercy. And so as we see judgment flow from this throne and there's gonna be judgment that is unrolled towards mankind, it comes from a throne that is encompassed by a rainbow that reminds us of the mercy and grace that also comes with that judgment. Not only is he set apart in appearance, he's set apart in character. He's set apart in character. The theme that runs through this is that he is holy, holy, holy. And the idea of the three uh, repeats of that word stresses the importance and and the validity of that. So that these creatures cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. He is set apart in character. We praise him for remaining holy for all time. Not only was he holy in the past, the one who was, not only is he holy in the present, the one who is, but he is also to remain holy as the one who is to come. His holiness throughout all of history, right? We praise him for his character. He is set apart in character and in appearance and deserves our worship accordingly. Number three, we praise God for he created and sustains everything. We praise God for he created and sustains everything. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. For our kids, God created everything. He deserves our worship accordingly. We're called, first of all, to show his worthiness. We're called to show his worthiness. We praise God by submitting to him as our creator. We give back to him what he has given to us. The picture that the elders give us is that they have these crowns, but what are they doing with these crowns? They're casting them back to God, right? The gift that was given to them, crowns that typically signal authority, right? And these elders have thrones, they have crowns, but what are they doing with that authority? They're not sitting upon their thrones, right? Where does it it have the elders? They're they're laid out before the throne of God. Where are the crowns? Not upon their heads anymore, right? They've given back that authority to God, right? So we we have all authority being submitted back to God, and we praise God by doing so. Our sovereignty yields to his. We are to acknowledge his control and reign over our life. We praise God by submitting to him as our creator. We show his worthiness by how we live, by how we submit ourselves to him, by how we worship him. Number two, not only are we called to show his worthiness, we're called to proclaim his worthiness. We're called to proclaim his worthiness. We praise God by telling him and others of his greatness. And how do we do that? We certainly do it by singing. We sing about God and to God, right? Some of these songs here are directed to God. Some of them are about God. First one, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, right? That's a celebratory song for everyone around to hear. This is what we think about God. This is how we view God. This is the value that we're attaching to God. Then you get down to the bottom. Now they're singing directly to God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so we can bring glory and honor to God by doing both, singing songs about God, singing songs to God. I've told you already today, there's lots of singing in Revelation. And sometimes we talk about heaven being an ongoing eternal state of singing. And for those of us that are still and me included, still trying to wrap our mind around the gloriousness of God. It may sound like, how in the world can we sing for eternity about God? I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Um, Beloved friends, we may well continue to praise God, for our God continues to give us causes for praise. Right? The reason that we can continue to praise God for all eternity is because he's going to continue to give us reasons to do so. Right? We don't praise him simply for what has happened in the past and then get bored and tired with what he did in the past. God continues to give us fresh, new reasons to worship him and to glorify him and to honor him and to praise him. We talk a lot about praising him for things that he's done in the past. right? We sing and praise him for the, the salvation that's been extended to us. But hopefully we can see on a daily basis reasons that we have to continually, ongoing praise him for the work that he's doing in our life. Our application statement that I want to give you, because history is the realization of his perfect will, we are to worship God in both attitude, word, and deed as we celebrate who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. I told you that The foundation for these songs that they're singing, it's tied to the fact that they see history as the realization of God's will. Things that must happen, things that he's done in the past as a creator, things that he's going to bring about in the future. The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. Let me read to you as as you're writing that down, Psalm chapter 104. This is a great passage that reminds us of our God as creator. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. It's a picture of Revelation 4, right? Stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. His ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep, as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose; the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may, uh, so they might not gain. Uh, not again cover the earth you make springs gush forth in the valleys they flow between the hills they give drink to every beast of the field the wild donkeys quench their thirst beside them the birds of the heavens dwell they sing among the branches from your lofty abode you water the mountains the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are there uh, for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting, you make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May the meditations be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. For our family worship questions this week, I wanna, I wanna draw our attention back to the idea of singing and praising God through song. Number one, what are some favorite songs for your family and, specific, and what specifically do they say about God? I want us to discuss a little bit about some of the favorite songs that we have as family and what do they specifically say about God? And then number two may feel weird and awkward. You know, I was, I was thinking probably as a church, the only time that we... Um, sing together is on Sunday mornings and at our Christmas party, and that's probably about it, right? And so to sing in any other environment may feel extremely odd and weird at first, but as I was thinking and preparing and and seeing the singing that's taking place in heaven and how it seems to be a continuous, ongoing type thing you know, it got to me to thinking, like, why, why aren't we singing in our, in our small groups when we meet, right? Like, like this is what we do in heaven, right? Um, why aren't we singing in our accountability groups, right? Like, that, that might feel really odd at first, like, especially for my group that meets at McDonald's. We'd probably have to meet somewhere different, right? Um, but I think speaking as a man and knowing that I think oftentimes men feel challenged in the area of singing even trying to, as we leave today, personally assess what are my hesitations in singing on a Sunday morning and what am I doing to address them? Okay, so here's where it's, I don't think it's okay to just say, hey, I don't sing because I'm not very good at singing. So, so I've just resolved to not sing or I don't like singing or, or whatever the reasons may be. Our headmaster at Trinity, anytime we talk about sports and get excited about how Trinity's doing, he always reminds us, because he's a fine arts guy. like He loves sports, but he loves the fine arts. He loves the singing and the band, things that don't naturally come my way as far as a level of interest. He always reminds us, he says, what are people doing in heaven? Right? They're singing and they're playing instruments. And so he talks about the fact that bodily uh, training profits very little, Right, But he talks about the glories of, of people that have committed themselves to learning, to sing, and to rejoice in that capacity that potentially it maybe sets them up for greater cause in, in the future. Um, I don't think it's probably okay for us to just resolve to say, I don't sing right now, Like I'll sing in heaven because I don't know exactly what's gonna be different in that capacity there in heaven. We'll have a greater picture of who God is, right? But that certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't have as great a capacity to know God now that would lead us to rejoice in singing. So I want us to think a little bit over the next, and we'll probably come back to this because there's some singing in chapter five too, so we can keep this theme running. I want us to think through, why are we hesitant to sing in the limited times that we have available to us? Why do we hesitate maybe to sing joyfully, to sing loud, to sing confidently. Tyson certainly removes what some people would probably offer up and say, I don't know the songs very well, right? Like Tyson gives that to us in advance. If that's a hesitation, Tyson has equipped us to listen to them prior to showing up so that even a new song doesn't have to be a new song anymore, right? Um, I love singing with our kids. We sing with our kids every night when we put them to bed. I love being able to pick songs that I think portray spiritual truths that I want them to know I think singing is a great way to be unified around things, right? Like not everybody's saying individual things that they want to say. Everybody's saying the same thing. Creeds do that and catechisms do that, but I don't know anybody that recites catechisms in the shower or or recites catechisms driving down the road. Like well, what do we do? We sing, right? We sing about memorable truths. Um, and so I certainly think there's a truth here that that singing should be maybe probably more Uh, an aspect of our life than it currently is. And so I want us to be thinking about that because, again, there's a lot of songs in Revelation, a lot of people singing, not just in four and five, but in chapters to come. And so let's think about why we don't sing more and maybe try to adapt some ways to start singing more in our life in the coming weeks. Um, So think about singing in your small group uh, next week. And think about singing in your accountability group next time you meet as well. Talk about some of the songs that are your favorite songs. Um, Thankfully, we have Jesse in our accountability group so we can have him bring his guitar and... uh, We'll have some music to sing with. Um, But yeah, just something that I was thinking about as a personal way to to apply some of the things that are here. Singing is a big part of what's happening in heaven. And I think it certainly should be a big part of what's taking place in our life here as well as we worship God, praise God, sing about God, sing to God, acknowledge him for who he is in this chapter specifically as our creator. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. God, I thank you that we were able to sing Um, almost word for word this morning, the things that we see in chapter 4. Father, we certainly acknowledge you as our creator, and Lord, we know that there are oftentimes days and moments where we fail to do that. Uh, we, We take up a crown once again for ourselves, and we begin to operate as though we run our life or though we have the authority to make decisions absent from you. God, we ask for forgiveness in those moments and times. Lord, help us to see that sanctification is ultimately a journey back to the garden where we are submitting to you as our creator, a relationship that we forfeited out of our own choice to walk away, to, to, to listen to the lies. And God, help us to see every day that we wake up, we are battling against those same lies, that Satan hasn't changed his, um, his, his, uh, his goal, that he still wants us to believe that you're not in control and that you're not good. And while his methods maybe have changed over time, his his focus and his goal is the same. God, help us to see you as our holy creator. A God who is so different from us. A God who is so separated from us. Father, we praise you and thank you for the things that you have done, not only for your character, but for the things that you have done that make you worthy of our worship. Lord, I pray that as we leave today, that we would be willing to self-examine ourselves in the same way we did about our lukewarmness, that we would examine ourselves and question ourselves as to our motivation to sing, our motivation to proclaim your glory through our lips. Um, Lord, I pray that singing would be uh, something that is increasing in our life, um, that we would find joy in celebrating your character and your works as the psalmist did, as the um, heavenly celestial beings are doing in heaven right now. We praise you and thank you for all these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.